Welcome to Positivity Strategist, a podcast to help you be the best you can be to grow your business, your relationships and personal life. Our conversations with thought leaders and everyday people will inspire you. My mission is to show how positivity helps us all live a more rewarding and meaningful life. Hello, I'm Robin Stratton-Burkessel, host of Positivity Strategist. I'm excited that it's now two weeks since I introduced a new segment on Positivity Strategist. It's called The Positivity Lens. By now you know I have fabulous guests on a weekly basis who generously share their stories and strategies of positivity. They offer tips and tools that we can model and try on for ourselves to strengthen our positivity muscle or positivity resonance. And in this segment, I recommend an activity for us to focus on each week to begin to develop our positivity lens. So in last week's episode 9 called Finding Your Superpower for Peak Performance with Johan Gautier, you can read that on positivitystrategist.com PS9, we learned that Johan is all about positive energy. He describes peak performance as a day-to-day thing and it's all about the small things. When you find what's core to your performance, he says that we really allow ourselves to shine and the people around us will feel that excitement and enthusiasm and you're living the authentic life. Johan clearly, clearly demonstrates that his superpower is playfulness. So the positivity lens activity for this past week was to focus on what energy comes up for you and what energy informs your day-to-day performance so that you're living with excitement and enthusiasm and in your authentic self. What little things about you seem to come through so that the compound effect is your superpower and informs your day-to-day efforts and contributions? So I've got my report out. My superpower is love. And it's love in the biggest, grandest sense of the word. Love for me is a superpower that underscores all human connection. I want everyone to experience love for all humankind. I know that heartfelt connections are what transform us and I'm not bashful about signing my emails with Love Robin. I mean it. I want to spread love all over the world. And when I perform from my heart centre with love, I'm performing at my peak. Now, today our guest is Ted Koine. This is extremely exciting. Ted's all about social connection. And as you learn about Ted and the work that he's doing in the world and focusing on the human side of business, you'll get a sense of what his superpower is. I have a suspicion that it's all aligned to social connection. Today, I'm jumping with excitement as my guest is Ted Koine. Ted, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you, Robin. I am thrilled to be here. I really love your podcast. I'm learning a tremendous amount by listening to your previous shows. Oh, thank you. Well, you're adding to that. I'm so grateful. So Ted, you, Ted Koine, and Mark Babbitt are authors of a new book called A World Gone Social, How Companies Must Adapt to Survive. And we'll get to that in a moment. Ted has had many, many accolades And you can go to his wildly successful blog called Switch and Shift, of which he's chairman and founder, to find out more. 
in a nutshell, he's one of the most influential business experts on the web and he's leading a social revolution in change. He's top ranked by Forbes, SAP Business Innovation and HuffPost. Ted consults with owners, CEOs and boards of directors on making their companies more competitive by making them more human focused. And Ted says, I collect fascinating people. I go out of my way to meet them so I can ask all sorts of questions, bounce ideas off them, learn from them and help my audience, whether online or in a book or live. One theme these remarkable people have in common, almost universally, is that they're driven by something bigger than themselves. So I am honoured that Ted and I have collected each other, and it's been an amazingly enriching experience already in a very short time. Reciprocity is the juice that sustains us, and he exudes authenticity, he walks the talk. So Ted, I hope you are absorbing all these accolades because you certainly deserve it, and I congratulate you and Mark Babbitt on this new book, A World Gone Social. I love it. (laughs) Thank you, Robin. It's really uncomfortable for me to sit here um, accepting praise, but I'm I'm smiling at the same time. So thank you. I appreciate that. Can I tell you why I love your book? Please. Well, I have to admit that first I thought, do I really want to learn or read a book about social media? I was wrong. (laughs) And how small-minded and totally unappreciative I was. Because this book is amazing And it's actually a book about leadership and organization development and culture change and global movements. And what I got out of this book, Ted, it just resonated so much because it's how to redistribute power. It's how to be intrinsically motivated. It tells you how to build community and how to be connected. And it tells you what real engagement looks like and can produce. And it also tells you how to mobilize change and how to be in your own integrity And I could go on and on. It was actually a page turner. And I have to say that I love the language and the stories. And it's really written from the heart. And on every page, I came across stories that bring life to the values such as, and these values are really important to me, transparency and engagement and collaboration and participation and empowerment and authenticity and integrity, being emotionally invested and mission-driven and community. It was just extraordinary. So can you tell that I really love this book? (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I can. And you're getting me all fired up. (laughs) Good. So I'm going to give you a chance to talk in a minute. But through my appreciative lens, I'd love you to focus on some of the high points for you in the process of writing this book and now that you're promoting it. So what fills you with awe, wonder? And I use that term deliberately because I know awesome is an important word to you. (laughs) Awesome is my favorite word. It just comes out of my mouth. So yes, I'm a very enthusiastic person, you might have noticed. And that's why we're such good friends, I think, uh, is that we've attracted each other. But what fills me with awe about this, I really like the fact that I, I wrote a book that is resonating with people. That really fills me with delight. And how are you knowing that? Well, uh, as we were joking before the, the show started, until I'm on The Daily Show, my girls aren't really going to believe that I, my book was all that big a deal. And maybe not me either. We watch Jon Stewart every night. But uh, 
so that's where success is. That's my yardstick. But aside from that, you know, I've just I've received some tremendous praise from some people that I highly respect, and that makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my parents raised me to uh, judge others by by who they hang around in in a good way. Mm-hmm. If you're hanging around solid ethical people and they're allowing you to do that, you're probably a good person yourself. And so being able to write this book with Mark is an absolute treat and pleasure and honor. And then, you know, we've, we've gotten some great write-ups about the book. It's, it's hitting a nerve because I think people like you, you know, they're realizing, oh, this is not a social media book. That word social may be misleading at first. Mm. This is a leadership book about the social age which we are in and people are dying for some advice on how to leave the industrial age behind. Very nice. Yeah. Do you know, I actually looked up, I did a Google search on social age. Mm -hmm. Do you know there's only one entry that isn't about maturing and going through social ages of maturation from childhood upwards? Mm -hmm. So there's that part of it. And then the only other entry about social age is a Wikipedia entry and it's one line long. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying, I think, is that we've discovered something. We've isolated a truth of the business realm and have uh, shared it with the world. That's what you're saying. Which is cool. That's we didn't want to cool. write a Me Too book. That's very cool. I think you're onto something. And that's why in the introduction I was talking about you're leading a social revolution in change. In the appreciative inquiry world, we talk about a positive revolution in change, mm-hmm. and this is a social. So what's social for you? So here's the thing. People, as you well know, people have always been social. We like each other. We like to, to spend time with each other, to talk with each other. That's what we do. We, we're social creatures. And so the industrial age kind of separated us from being social with each other. You come in, you do your time, you, you get your work done. If you don't get it done, we'll replace you with somebody else. So all the jobs were kind of you know mechanistic and, and that wasn't very fulfilling for people, but it certainly did work. When you think about, you know, look around your house at all the things that were made in factories and what have you. Well, we've moved on from that. That worked, but it wasn't very fulfilling. Social media has allowed us to connect with each other, has allowed us to do what we have been doing for, you know, 100,000 years as social creatures. Uh, back before then, we were, we were social monkeys. So um, social media is just putting us together. That's all. And so you say that being social is being human. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind addressing some of the objections that come up in the area that real connection and relationship building happens only face-to-face. How do you deal with that? That's, that's an excellent concern. And for an outsider, that's obvious. And for insiders, okay, we have to remember back before we got on social how, how our perspective was. So fortunately, my, um, my uncle met his wife through computer dating back in the 1960s. Mm. This little germination of an idea that you can find somebody who fits you before you ever meet them in person really was there from way back then. Now, that was weird and kind of uh, not many people did that back in the 60s. 
But in the 90s, people started meeting each other via chat rooms. And the thing is, when you are writing back and forth over a long period of time, a little bit each time, you're able to establish relationships based on common interests. Now, here's the thing. It isn't that you just stay with your, you know, your friends on, on social media and all you can do is communicate 140 characters at a time. You start there. You find each other. You build relationships. You read each other's blog posts, which instead of being 140 characters might be a thousand words. So then you get to know, okay, this person is coming from this area. I like how they think. You get on the phone with them. You get on Skype with them. And then if you're fortunate, you meet them in person. And the really great thing about that is when you do, and you and I and, and um, Jurgen had this experience uh, just recently, when you meet that person live for the first time, flesh to flesh, it's no big deal. It's like, hey, so as we were talking the other day, mm-hmm. and that's how it goes. Mm-hmm. And I love that about social because you are able to make friends with people from all around the world. When you finally meet them, it's like a homecoming. <laughs> It is. It's, you know, you find your tribe this way, don't you? Yeah. And I think it is about having those things in common. And as you were talking there, Ted, I was thinking it's almost like a pre-qualification exercise, which sounds a little heartless, but it works. No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) Not heartless. The thing is, you know, if somebody really cares about cat care, good for them. But I don't have a cat. That's not my thing. If somebody loves Justin Bieber... Awesome. I'm really happy for you. You can find other Bieber fanatics. I'm not into Justin Bieber. In fact, I don't really, you know, I don't have very strong feelings about music. So that's not my thing either. But I really do care about businesses treating customers and employees really well. And I care about ideas that help me make the case that that's actually more profitable. So those things are what's interest me. That's how I find most of my friends online because we're both talking about leadership. We're both talking about customer experience and things like that. We find each other. It goes from a huge, you know, hundreds of millions of people down to a few hundred immediately. Mm. When did you first start on Twitter? 2009. Uh-huh. Well, so did I. And you're about 350,000 or more ahead of me in terms of followers at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so that says a number of things. And one of them is, and I think this is a theme that comes out in the book, that it takes effort hard work, commitment, and consistency to really be good at anything. Anything, And so the same goes for having a presence and a following and showing your leadership in this social age. Uh So, I mean, I would say that with your 300,000 ahead of me, you've worked harder and been more consistent and put greater effort in. Well, here's what happened to me in 2009. I had never really given Twitter a second thought. It was just some frivolous thing that was barely on my radar. And a friend of mine said, Ted, you're an author and a speaker. Get on Twitter. You're going to meet people. It's going to open doors for you. So there you go. I did. And right away, I decided I loved it. Everybody has their social platform that they particularly like that jives with them. Some people, it's Facebook or Instagram, or if you're a little bit formal, it's LinkedIn. For me, I'm ADD and Twitter is perfect for anyone ADD. Boy, it feeds us. Mm. So, so every morning I got on there 
And I just, uh, what I call tending my social media garden. I, my brain isn't really very awake in the morning. Certainly my mouth isn't, but I wake up about five o'clock before anyone else in my house. And I just go on and make sure that I'm following people back who are kind enough to follow me. And just little things like that every morning with my coffee, because I've got to do something in the morning. And that's a really good way to spend my time. It only takes me about 20 minutes. And then, uh, and then I get on with the rest of my day. And I, I do that on my birthday because I wake up before the rest of my family wakes up. I often do that on Christmas because I wake up after Santa has arrived but before the girls do. <laughs> it's just a habit. Mm. When I was a kid, I swam. And just like Twitter, you know, Twitter, I had one follower and then 10 followers before I had 400,000 followers. Well, swimming, I was the worst kid in the pool by far. I, I was an embarrassment to my whole family. <laughs> but they were kind. They didn't put it that way. And I just stuck with it. Everyone, no matter the endeavor, you stick with something, you put in the time, it'll, it'll pay off better than somebody who doesn't. Yeah, I think that's a great reminder, not just giving up and thinking it's not for you. You know, referring back to the book, you've got some very colourful roles in the book to describe certain characteristics of players in the social age. For example, blue unicorns and rebel heretics and relentless givers. I mean, these are fabulous descriptions. And I, my favourite is the rebel heretic. I want to know how I get that badge. <laughs> well, okay. So when we founded Switch and Shift about three years ago, Sean Murphy and I wanted to start a leadership blog just together, but we had a similar view on business, which is that we've got to shake things up a little bit. And we want to attract other people who get that we need to shake things up, not in a destructive way, but in a, hey guys, things have changed, you should too, kind of way. And we've attracted a tribe. And I love the, um, the badge heretic. Heretics mm-hmm. get burned at the stake, but if they can avoid the stake, they also transform the world. Mm-hmm. So Sean's example is um, Copernicus, where the guy realized the world was round. He and Galileo both play into this. They realized the world, not the world was round, I'm sorry, but that the, the earth was not flat. the center mm-hmm. of the solar system or the universe. Mm-hmm. It was the sun. And they weren't going to take no for an answer, even though the Pope wanted them to shut up. So they were heretics. They were rebels. They were going against the status quo, even at danger to themselves. People in business who go against the status quo either thrive, they transform markets, or they suffer within their industry. So what we're doing is with Switch and Shift, we've brought a group together, a community where you can find people like you, people who see that there's a new way of doing business that's a better way of doing business. The social age is all about tearing down the idols Mm. of the industrial age and being more modern. Mm. You know, there are other things all wound up in that, having flatter organizations and busting bureaucracies, empowering and giving voices to people. And Mm -hmm. the things that I was talking about earlier about what I love about the book in terms of building community and strengthening engagement. And you give some wonderful examples of engaged organizations. Sure. We, we find some companies that are really doing things right by their employees and by their customers. And there's usually a tie between the two and companies that just plain aren't. And we juxtapose them. So 
we have all sorts of examples in there of uh, these are two companies, one's doing it right, one's not doing it so right. One example among many is uh, if you think of Southwest Airlines, now the company's been around since 19, uh, yeah, 1972, long before social media, long before people even got on the internet for, for one-way communication, right? But they've been doing things right. They treat their employees really respectfully and well. They make sure that the employees understand, okay, we're all here for one thing. We are here to give a great customer experience and to make sure that we keep costs low by pitching in and doing what we must, regardless of our role. So it's a company that is, uh, even with all of the unions that they have, have to work with, it's a, a company based on an ethic of mutual respect. And so you see the pilots who are usually, first of all, mistreated by management and second of all, haughty and, and too good to clean out the cabin, the pilots will pitch in after a flight and they will help clean the cabin so they can turn that plane around and, and take off again on time. Now, that has brought tremendous benefit to Southwest Airlines. We, we have an example of how <laughs> Southwest misstepped and um, made it a uh, social media blunder. They angered somebody with a million Twitter followers who complained quite vocally online about his treatment. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's on the one hand. And on the other hand is United Airlines. Now people hate United Airlines. The customers hate them. The employees don't seem to be very fond of United Airlines. They're at the bottom of every customer satisfaction list you can name. I'm not exactly sure how they're still in business, but they're, <laughs> but they are. Mm -hmm. So you have these two, you have these two examples. And when each of them have a, a misstep, people who are familiar with United Airlines get on this bandwagon and there's 14 million views on the YouTube song protesting how bad United Airlines is. At the same time, people who are familiar with Southwest Airlines, when this dust-up happened, they Southwest handled it really, really well. Unlike United, they handled it really in a, in a classy way, respectful way. And people said, okay, they made a mistake and they got off their case. So one blew up on social and the other didn't. Mm -hmm. Now, is this a social media issue on the surface? But really, it's a company culture issue where mm -hmm. one company culture values its customers, values its employees tremendously. And that is employee engagement. And they also happen to engage with their their followers on different um, social media by communicating with them, as opposed to the disengaged, unhappy customers and employees of United Airlines. That juxtaposition of those two examples, just one of many that we found where the, the problems, the symptoms that happen in the social realm are really, they're symptoms of a disease that occurs deep within the organizational culture. They're two very good examples, absolutely. And I remember reading there was a particular guy that you referred to as a leader and you were saying that he was engaging mm -hmm. and by virtue of his behaviour and how he was getting to know his employees, he then enabled engagement to happen. Absolutely. So I, I just love that that sense of you have to be it in mm -hmm. order to facilitate it happening. Without question, without question. One of our famous, uh, so we, we call a blue unicorn is a social leader because they're not just as rare as unicorns. They're as rare as a particular color of unicorn. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, corporate CEOs out there who are actually being represented by pimply faced interns in the basement. Mm-hmm. Nothing against interns with acne, but mm-hmm. that should not be who's who's manning your Twitter account. Right. It should be you. Yeah. So that's one example. And then we we found one of our blue unicorns that we interviewed for the book is Peter Sato. He is the CEO of Tangerine, used to be ING Direct up in Canada. Now, Peter, this is this is a really interesting thing that has nothing whatsoever to do with social. When he became CEO of his company, he closed the top floor with the executive offices of his company. He closed it. So he does not have an office. And his C-level executives also do not have an office. It's got dust bunnies up there now. Mm-hmm. And what he did instead is he has a laptop and he travels to different parts of the company across Canada. And he just pulls up in a table or a cubicle that's empty and he starts working from there. So he's with his people all the time, getting to know them. They also have collaboration technology within the company. They call it Orange Grove. They're, you know, color tangerine, orange grove. So Mm -hmm. they are constantly bringing up issues to Peter. And sometimes he learns things that are just amazing to him. One person, um, an example we have in the book, somebody said, you know, I'm surprised that we have paper that we have to fill out for this internal process because we're a paperless company for our customers. And he said, we are, we have paper. And he took care of it right away. That's the type of thing that only comes out if a leader is engaging with the employees. Mm -hmm. He also engages with the customers. So he set up a Twitter account in a matter of minutes and he, uh, he started listening in and right away he dove in there. He started talking to customers and to people who had banking questions, et cetera, whether they were customers or not. And when an issue arises and he answers his tweet stream and gets something resolved at 1130 on a Saturday night, get something resolved for a customer so that they don't have a delayed house closing, imagine the company loyalty. Mm-hmm. Imagine the people who never say to him, Peter, I saw this and it, um, it made me want to be a customer of yours. They just do it. Yeah. It's a great example of people living to values of their own and then wanting to live out those values so that other people get inspired by them. And I I found that was one of the things that also spoke to me at a deep level was that you were describing possibilities that the sort of people that you can attract to be on social and represent themselves and their organisations and engage with fellow employees or customers that when they do this, they like their strengths. So they already have a value set around this and they have an interest in doing this. And so this work comes easily to them and they get into this flow. They naturally feel that they're contributing and connecting and building relationships. So is there a kind of personality type that gravitates to this and should people be looking for Um, people who demonstrate these kinds of attributes? Absolutely. So say you're leader of a company and your company is just antisocial right now. You're either not online whatsoever or else the way that you do it is not getting good results because you're just broadcasting. You're pretending that your Facebook page is a place for you to put advertisements like it's, you know, 1950 and and, uh, it's a magazine. So you want to find some 
social talent to represent your brand. The first place to look is within your company. Any company with more than, say, 10 employees is going to have somebody who's socially fluent already because they enjoy it. They're just not doing it for your company. So finding those people is quite easy, especially if you ask them to raise their hands. Hey, who's interested in representing our brand socially? And the the person you want is somebody who loves the company, somebody who understands how to engage already. Tapping them for, for uh, representing your company on social, making them a community manager, for instance, there is nothing they would rather do. It's their dream assignment for them. You know, there are other people who won't want to do that, and that's just fine. The only question really is if you find people who are socially quite active and quite fluent and do not want to represent your brand, you might want to look within and say, boy, what is it about our brand that these people don't want this assignment of being a a representative of our company online? Maybe it's because representing your company online would Mm -hmm. would tarnish their image that they've built with their friends and followers over the years. Mm. That's a really good litmus test for how healthy is your organization. But probably you're going to find people right within who will do a great job of leading your company into the social age. Yeah. Yeah. Both sides of the coins there. That was really insightful. Ted, one of the beautiful acronyms in the book is OPEN, O-P-E-N. And I'd like you to talk about what OPEN means and how relevant it is in the social age. We love this. And you have met, Robin, you've met Suzanne Daigle, who inspired this this acronym for us. So uh, just a remarkable woman and a tremendous friend. So so here's how this how this goes. Mark and I, you know, we're working on this book. For me, it was a five-year project. And close to the end of the, the project, we said to ourselves, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's something here that we haven't covered. And thanks to Suzanne, we discovered it. Without all the gory details, the discovery is open. Ordinary people, extraordinary network. Now, that does not mean that everyone is just ordinary. Nobody has any particular talents. We're all good at something. What it means instead is that when we have need for expertise to fill our gaps through social, through the networks that we have built and continue to build and to strengthen, these are all relationships, we can find the talent we need. That's the extraordinary network. Say, for instance, you know, I I personally, you wouldn't want me to, to do your taxes. We'd both go to jail. But if, (laughs) but if you wanted somebody to do your taxes through your network or through your friends' networks, which, by the way, are, are part of your network, uh, they're just one degree removed, you can find world-class accountants to help you with your business, to help you with your personal taxes, to give you financial advice, whatever it is. You find them online, and, of course, you, you, know, you build that relationship, as we were discussing earlier, where you take it to Skype or you meet with them in person, etc. So... How strong your network is, that really depends on you and how much you have developed it. And the neat thing is it depends on how much giving you have done prior. So for instance, if you're just kind of a uh, a guarded person or even worse, a, a selfish person, you don't give and you just ask, ask, ask all the time, your network is going to be weak. 
you will have extraordinary people not too far from you who might be able to help you, but they're not going to help you. As opposed to when you've been sowing goodwill all along, just you know, connecting people, doing little favors as you can. Um, one of my favorite things, and I believe it's one of yours as well, Robin, is just introducing friends to each other. They might be able to help each other. They don't know each other now. Let's make an introduction and then get out of the way and they can do what they want. So you do that. You sow the good karma. Then when you need some help from your network, those bonds are strong. People are going to help you. That's the power of open. Mm -hmm. Individuals can do this. Companies can do this. It's a, it's a tremendous way of doing business in the social age and of living in the social age. Yeah, and I think that's the great value. It's about the individual finding that power and creating their own network. And then mm -hmm. absolutely at the individual level, you can then take it to the organizational level. So if you have a real mission about something, you are able to then find through all the different networks. And it takes a little bit of searching and, you know, using the tools wisely to mm -hmm. then reach out to people who can support you or who you can offer something to. And I think this fits into your relentless givers. It's another term that I absolutely mm -hmm. love. So the relentless giving is being a source of value with your information, your knowledge, your networks freely. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've learned through my own experience and then modeling myself on great experts like you. I'm calling you an expert because you are part of my extraordinary network. And see, that's the thing. So you're an expert in appreciative inquiry and I'm not. And if I'm an expert in another realm, then yes, being able to help each other because we've both uh, clearly given. And, and you know, one thing, Robin, that's really neat is we don't need to establish this relationship over the course of years with each other because in the social age, your reputation has been following you for sometimes close to a decade now. Mm -hmm. The things you have done online are still there. So a person who has been, been behaving in a maybe not so ethical way, wow, it's easy for people to find out if they're socially plugged in. A person who behaves in a you know, quite ethical and generous way, they have built up this reputation where people will vouch for them so you don't need to uh, necessarily know them for very long. You know their reputation and you can know that this is a person you can trust or this is a person who will be willing to help you. It's really neat. One of my favorite books, and I think yours too, is Adam Grant's Give and Take. Mm -hmm. And he makes a really good point in there. Now, Adam's no you know social media expert, but he's a, an expert on people who are just pathological takers, uh, maybe sociopaths, and people who are incredibly generous and all in between. He says Ken Lay of Enron, the way that he swindled his investors of just, I, I believe it was billions of dollars, he never could get away with that type of thing today because people could, could go back and look at his, oh, he did this with his first company, he did this with his second company, he did this with his third company. By the time he got to Enron, he had already destroyed other companies, people's careers, investments that his investors had made. The thing is, before the social age, it was really hard to check up on people. Now, boy, it's, it's quite easy. Yeah, it amplifies both the good and the bad. 
Exactly. And um, that speaks to the great value of transparency, which we're, mm-hmm. we're getting better at it because <laughs> of these tools, right? Transparency is there whether we want it to be or not. Exactly. And that to me is a huge benefit of all of this. Love it. Yep. So I love your stories where social is a medium for good in the world. And I would love you to offer us maybe some, are there some little positive actions or little habits that some of our listeners might like to try on so that they can begin to improve their their contribution into the social age? We, we have a couple things in the book that have really caught on with readers, and that's how we know they're successful. One of them is more social, less media. So don't focus on the technology. The technology will come and go. And don't focus on being a media company where you say, hey, look at this. This is the latest blog post I wrote, and this is the latest article that's nice about me, and this is what my company is doing or what have you. Okay, you know, do that a little bit, but much, much more. Do this is what a friend wrote that my my um, followers or my Facebook friends or my LinkedIn connections might find of value. <sighs> Share things for others. Connect people. Be the social animal that you already are. And the more of the relentless giver that you are, the more of that reputation we were discussing you will be able to build. <sighs> and another thing that's a, a really good benefit of um, – this social age, is that when you give and give and give, then when you need a connection, you can ask and somebody's going to say, well, you know, I can't help you, but here, let me introduce you to this person. That happens to me all the time where I personally, like a friend who's a CIO, and this is a friend whose work I admire. Now, I personally don't have a career advice for him, but I put him in touch with a top tier recruiter who can work with him and help him. So that's something that you only get by building those relationships over time. Our reach is enormous. We didn't have that reach before. One one thing Mark and I point out is that back in the 90s, um, when that movie Six Degrees of Separation came out, and then the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. So all these actors are tied to Kevin Bacon by, you know, <laughs> six, six individuals in between at most. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, now... It's literally down to one or two degrees. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to know the person, but somebody in your network will. Mm -hmm. And even if you have just, you know, 100 followers on Twitter or, you know, 20 Facebook friends, something catches on and you'll make that connection. We have a wonderful example of um, a kid. His grandma was dying of cancer in the hospital. And she, he said, you know, is there anything that I can bring for you? She said, you know, there's one thing. I really love the chowder at Panera Bread. And the thing is, they only make that on Friday. So the kid goes to Panera Bread and he talks to the manager. And he says, you know, my grandma's dying in the hospital and she'd really love some um, clam chowder. I know you only make it on Friday. Would you be able to, to make a batch? So she sure did. She circumvented their process, which is only Friday. She made it for him on another day of the week. She gave him some, I forget what else she sent, some sweets along with it. And the kid was so touched because his grandma was so touched that he went on Facebook and he posted it. And his post did not get a lot of attention itself. But one of the people who posted it on her Facebook page, his mom, was much more connected. And boom, that thing took off. I think it had 800,000 page views and, and likes. So 
just the ability for some kid to be connected, in this case to his mom, to a network that will just explode a story like this, we all have that very close at our fingertips. That's such a lovely story. And it's so typical of you, Ted, that you have these beautiful, grounded, earthy, real stories to share with us. And it's right throughout the book. So thank you for that. And you just remind me of another thing that what social does for us, the social media in the social age does for us, is that when you publish it in your life, you never know where it's going to end up. That's really powerfully true. Mm. It absolutely is. That kid never expected to reward Panera with, you know, for their good karma with 800,000 people applauding them. Yeah. It, that was not in his imagination. It just happened. And it's a very uplifting story. And that's what, that's what this book does. I think it's yeah. inspiring and it's very uplifting. And it's given me the impetus that I want to go out there and be far more social. So I want to thank you, Ted. Thank you for your inspiration and thank you for your work and to Mark as well. And I can't wait to continue to be part of your extraordinary network and you mine. <laughs> no, you absolutely are <laughs> a very integral part. We've become friends because of uh, an introduction and um, you and Jürgen both. And I adore you. And let me tell you, continue, please, with your podcast telling people how appreciative inquiry works, because I have learned a tremendous amount. It's going to benefit me throughout the rest of my life. And the world needs your message. Wow. We love each other. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ted, thanks for spending the time with me today. Thank you, Robin. Now to the positivity lens activity for this week. Ted has clearly outlined for us in this episode that the reputation we build for ourselves in this social age has been building with or without our conscious awareness over the last decade. It makes really good sense to me that we take charge of managing our own brand in this social age of transparency, collaboration and engagement. Ted offered us a number of habits that can positively impact our presence in the social media channels. Therefore, our positivity lens activity for this week, let's strengthen our social connections. Let's practice open. You remember O-P-E-N, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Networks. So on the channels that you frequent, I suggest the following. Share others' content. Comment on others' content. Engage with someone actively in their stream. Introduce people in your extraordinary network to each other. Offer something to someone in your network. Ask for something. Pick up the phone and call someone. Or even better, Skype or do a Google Hangout. And meet with them if you're in the same geolocation. And to provide you with an even greater opportunity to commit to this new habit of open and be transparent, I encourage you to actively contribute by sharing your own story. Go to positivitystrategist.com slash voicemail to leave a message about what comes up for you about participating in the social age. It would be fun to incorporate your messages into some of our next episodes. The show notes for this episode with Ted Coyne can be found at positivitystrategist.com slash PS10. Also, you can be notified of new episodes by email. Links to all these suggestions are available on positivitystrategist.com 
forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening. And remember, what you focus on grows. So grow towards your best.